On the Monday before his death, Jesus Christ cleanses the temple. This is the second time he cleanses the temple because in his first year of ministry, he also cleansed the temple. And this is recorded in John chapter 2. The key to interpreting the second cleansing of the temple is, of course, in the context. It's on Monday. And what happened before on this same day? Jesus Christ cursed the fig tree. And then he goes into the temple. And you remember the meaning behind the cursing of the fig tree. It's a prophetic parable against Israel. They had the foliage of religion. They had the expectancy of bearing fruit. But when Christ comes and expects, there's only externalism, formalism, hypocrisy, and there is no fruit in Israel. And then immediately we have Christ coming to the temple. And the temple cleansing is expressing this truth in a more vivid way. Israel's religion is external, formal, hypocritical. And therefore he purifies this barren Israel. And so with this context in mind... We will consider the cleansing of the temple under three headings. One, the purifying of the temple. Two, the purpose of the temple. And three, the response to the temple cleansing. So first of all, the purifying of the temple. And here we can see the narrative, the meaning, and the lesson of the purifying. First of all then, the narrative. In chapter 15, Jesus Christ comes to Jerusalem and enters the temple. Remember, it's the time of Passover. It's a week of celebration and festivities. Tens and tens of thousands from all over the the Roman world are descending upon Israel and going up to Zion to Worship the Lord and remember the Lord's redemptions. And the centre of this festivity is the temple. And the temple is separated by several courts. The outer court, which is the largest court, is named the court of the Gentiles. This was around 500 by 325 yards. And then there was another court called the court of the women. In this court, the women were permitted, but no further. Then you have the court of Israel, and only men who are Jews are permitted in that court. And the final court was the priestly court, where only priests were able to enter. And then, of course, in the middle is the temple itself. All commentators are agreed 
when Jesus Christ comes to the temple here, he is in the midst of the court of the Gentiles. But what does he see as he comes to this temple? It says here, in verse 15, he saw them that sold and bought. People were selling and people were buying animals, oil and wine. They were purchasing these goods so they could worship God. They were purchasing these goods so they can offer sacrifices to God. Imagine you lived in Italy or Greece or maybe further away and you're now travelling long distances on foot, on donkey, on boat. You're not going to take animals with you. And so you would come to Jerusalem and you would purchase what you need in order to worship God. Secondly, it says he saw the tables of the money changers. At the temple, every year you had to pay your temple tax. And in Exodus 30, verse 13, it says, This they shall give everyone that passeth among them that are numbered half a shekel after the shekel of the sanctuary. So you couldn't give money from any other currency. It had to be the money of the shekel of the sanctuary. And so you live in foreign land, your currency is Egyptian coin, Greek coin, Roman coin, whatever have you. And they would come to the temple and they would exchange their money for the shekel of the temple. And they would pay their temple tax, but also because it's in the temple, you're not allowed to buy your animals with Roman Greek coin, you could only pay with the shekel of the sanctuary. And so they were exchanging money. And then in verse 16, he sees something else. He speaks of uh, man should carry any vessel through the temple. Carry vessel means carrying merchandise. The temple is, of course, very large. But in the temple courts, there are gates on every side. And if you're working business or you're traveling with your merchandise, it's a pretty long journey to enter the city. Now go all the way around the temple and go to whatever destination. And these uh, men of business, these merchandise people, they would take a shortcut. They would use one of the temple gates, cut right through the temple, and it makes it easier and quicker to go to your destination. So Christ sees this all. It's a marketplace. It's busy. And what does he do? It says here he cast out those who sold and bought. It's a very strong word. It means to expel, to drive them out. It is like he grabbed them and threw them out the temple. Notice he did not just cast the sellers out. People get this wrong. The problem was not with the selling, it was with the selling and buying. And then it says... He overthrew the tables. Imagine the scene. Someone's sitting. There's a table. On one side is the Roman coin, the Egyptian coin, the Greek coin, the what have you coin. People are coming and there's shekels of the sanctuary. And Christ comes and he flips the, temple, the, the, the tables over. 
And then in verse 16, it says he does not permit them, he forbade them. He would not allow any of the merchandise men to take a shortcut through the temple. He stopped them from using the temple gates. Secondly, the meaning. Why did he do this? Verse 17 helps us. And he taught, saying unto them, Is it not written, My house shall be called of all nations the house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. So this is why he did what he did. And Jesus Christ is going to the Old Testament scriptures and he's quoting two passages of Holy Scripture. The first one, my house shall be called of all nations the house of prayer. This is Isaiah 56 verse 7. And he is quoting this passage because it's a positive passage. It's speaking of God coming in salvation. And the wonderful salvation is here is not only for the Jews, but even the outcasts. Gentiles, peoples and eunuchs. People who are previously not permitted to come to the temple for worship are now permitted to worship. And it describes their religion. It's true religion. It's a heart religion. There's a reverence and fear of God. There's a love for God. There's a rejoicing in God. And that's evidenced by godly living. It says in Isaiah 56, they are keeping the Sabbaths. They are obeying God. And it says in Isaiah chapter 56, verse 7. Even then will I bring to my holy mountain to make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings, their sacrifices shall be accepted upon mine altar. For mine house shall be called a house of prayer for all people. So this is the kind of worship God accepts. But then he quotes Jeremiah 7 verse 11. And it's negative. And in Jeremiah chapter 7, everything here is externalism and hypocrisy. The people believe if they're orthodox in their worship or if they worship God at the temple, then it doesn't matter how you live or doesn't matter how you approach God. Simply going to the worship is enough and God's delighted in it. That's why verse 4 says, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. And God says, I do not accept your worship. It's all outward, it's not of the heart. It's hypocritical because it's a, a life not obeying me. For example, in Jeremiah chapter 7. In verse 4, sorry, verse 10 to 12. And come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name. And we say, we are delivered to do all these abominations. 
Is this house, which is called by my name, a den of robbers in your eyes? But go ye now unto my place, which is in Shiloh, where I set my name at the first, and see what I did to it in the wickedness of my people. He destroyed what was going on in Shiloh for their worship, which was external and hypocritical. Now, putting the two scriptures together, why did Christ cast them out, overthrow the tables, and forbid the merchandise men from taking a shortcut? The temple is the house of God. It's a place of worship. It's a place where God is to be revered, loved, and obeyed. It's a place where true worship from the heart, all of life, is expressed in the house of God. But the Jews were not doing this. Because their hearts were not right with God, they did not fear or revere or love or rejoice in God. They turned the holy place into a common place. Instead of being holy, you could just change your money there like an ordinary market. Instead of being a holy dwelling place, you can buy and sell like it's the the marketplace. And you know what, in fact, if you want to take a shortcut, well, just use the temple. Could it also be there was extortion and corruption, den of thieves? There's a debate about this. Some people say this is simply a metaphor. And others say, no, 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 it's actually, there was extortionate rates to the buying and selling and the shekels and so on. We don't really know. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. But they were doing things in the holy house of God, which God did not command, and the people's hypocrisy and externalism was being revealed. And therefore it dishonoured God, and it made the holy place a common place. And Christ, with anger and zeal, throws the buyers and sellers out, flips over the tables, and forbids anyone from taking shortcuts through the temple. And we learn a lesson from this. And the lesson is very clear. External worship is not enough. If you said to the Jews, what's the temple all about? Holiness and presence and sacrifice and worship. But it was only external. Their hearts did not know God. Their souls did not fear and love God. It was only external. And God rejects their worship. And we've already come across this before in Mark chapter 7 verse 6. Where Christ is speaking to the Pharisees. And he quotes Isaiah. And he says, you honour God with your lips. But your hearts are far from him. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7. The Lord saith unto Samuel, Look not on his countenance or on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth, for man looketh on the outward appearance, 
but the Lord looketh on the heart. That's what God wants, heart religion, heart worship. And so you can be someone standing, uh, believing and singing the Psalms, uh, the Bible's the word of God, etc., etc., etc. You can look like that, externally be the most reverent man or woman but God doesn't look at the outside. God looks on the heart. Is your heart worshipping him? Is your heart adoring him? Is your heart fearing him? Is your heart praying? Is your heart singing psalms? Is your heart hearing the word of God? Is your heart hearing God's preaching? And if our worship is external only, God says he is angry in Christ. And just as Christ would cast an overthrow and forbid, he does not accept our worship. But secondly, hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is having two masks. Mask number one for the Jews is that this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. They would never allow a Gentile to move past the Gentile court. It's the temple of the Lord. You talk to them about worship and sacrifices and they would give you all the right answers. But here's the second mask. They lived their lives contrary to what they said they believed. The holy temple of the Lord and treated it as common as anything. And God and Jesus Christ says hypocritical worship is not accepted. How you live your life affects how God accepts your worship or not. You can come here and you can outwardly worship and you go home and your life is not consistent with the gospel and you live a disobedient life, God does not accept for example, in um, Amos chapter 5, 21. Israel worship the Lord at the temple, offer sacrifices, but they do not show justice and mercy to other people. They don't show justice and mercy to the poor. And therefore God says, I hate, I despise your feast days. I will not smell in your solemn assemblies. Though ye offer me burnt offerings and your meat offerings, I will not accept them, neither will I regard the peace offerings of your fat beasts. Take thou away from me the noise of thy songs, for I will not hear the melody of thy vials. Don't care about your praise. I'm not listening yet. You're treating people like dirt. You're extorting people. You're taking advantage of people. You're not loving your neighbour. You're hating your neighbour. And therefore, I do not accept your worship. Or, when Christ met the Pharisees, and he quotes Hosea 6.6, 6, where the Pharisees are very orthodox in many ways, but they don't show mercy to people. And Christ says, quoting Hosea 6.6, 6, For I desired mercy and not sacrifice. So imagine you're worshipping God. When you go home, you're the opposite of merciful to people. 
to your family, to your husband, to your wife, to your children, uh, to your bosses, to your work colleagues, to your neighbor, to what have you. God says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, and I do not accept your worship. You're a hypocrite. And so this teaches us externalism, formalism, and hypocrisy is not accepted by God. And as Jesus Christ cleanses this temple, it is showing us and revealing to us God's will. Christ does not accept these things. He accepts worship that from the heart is by faith that fears the living God, that loves the living God, worships God as he has commanded, and lives a life that corresponds to that faith. Is this me? Is this you? We're not speaking of perfectionism here. We're speaking of reality and sincerity and truth. Is your worship only external, formal, hypocritical? God does not accept. But when your worship is from the heart, with a renewed heart by the Holy Spirit, faith in God, faith in Jesus Christ, a reverence for the holy place of God, a love for him and his will, and a life that is seeking to consistently obey and please God. That's acceptable worship in the eyes of God. But secondly, the purpose of the temple. We could apply this in so many ways. We could apply this with the regular principle of worship. Whatsoever is not commanded is forbidden. And that would be right and proper. But last year I had multiple sermons on the regular principle and when I preached John chapter 2, cleansing of the temple, that was my main theme. I'm not going to emphasise that today. We could emphasise that the church is to be a house of prayer. And I've spoken often about the church being a house of prayer. So we're not going to emphasise that either. But I do hope we see it here. A house of prayer. What should characterise First RP? Prayer. What should characterise every true believer in worship? Prayer. What should characterise every Christian congregation? Prayer. When people visit and they spend time in our congregation, the one thing they should notice, this is a people who pray. Their worship service has plenty of prayer. They have prayer meetings with people attending for true prayer. When I go to their Bible studies or their women's breakfasts or their study groups or their fellowships or when people are just together, they pray and they pray often. May that be true of our congregation. But I want to here emphasise the heart of the matter. My house. And in Matthew it says, my father's house. House is the place of dwelling, abiding and living. Presence, 
God's presence in the church. House of prayer. Yes, the act. Yes, the worship act. But what is the heart of it? A soul that knows, adores and worships God. And so what I want to hear is take Jesus Christ's positive teaching of what the temple should be, my father's house, a house of prayer. It's a place where God dwells in his presence and the believer's soul adores the living God. True worship is when a believer is aware of the triune God's presence in worship and therefore their soul is filled with reverence, love and joy for God. How can we have this true worship? First of all, Faith that worship is God's dwelling place. Faith means knowledge, assent, trust. Here we have the temple. Here we have my house. Presence of God is the meaning. When God built the tabernacle, The Shekinah glory, which represented his presence, dwelled in the tabernacle to say, I am with my people. When God built himself a house under Solomon, 1 Kings chapter 8, the Shekinah glory again dwelt in the tabernacle and says, I am with my people. And in Leviticus chapter 10 verse 3, the purpose of worship at the temple, he says, I will draw nigh unto thee. And this presence of God, this temple, this house is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Because Hebrews chapter 8 and 9 tells us that these things were types and pictures of the heavenly places. Christ. Because the presence of God cannot be known with God immediately. Because we're sinners and he's holy and he's infinitely, infinitely incomprehensible and above us. But Christ is that temple. John 1.14, we know those sweet words. He is the eternal word, the eternal logos made flesh. And that word made, he tabernacled. So it became the next one. He tabernacled among us. He's the tabernacle of God. Because God's presence and dwelling place is in Jesus Christ. But Christ did something else. He built himself a house. He built himself a temple. And that's the church. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. Built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto a holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye are also builded together for an habitation, a dwelling place of God, 
through the Spirit. See what Paul's teaching there? Christ died and he purchased the church. He is the chief cornerstone. It's built upon him. He's given apostles and prophets to teach and preach the gospel. And when you repent of your sins and believe in Christ, you are a habitation of God. Isn't that wonderful? This is Trinitarian. You have God. God and his awesomeness and transcendence and infinity majesty. Then we have the Lord Jesus Christ who reveals and gives and builds. And then you have the Spirit of God from Jesus Christ. And saying God's presence through Christ by the Spirit dwells with you. That's wonderful. And so when people who believe in Christ gather together... The presence of the Almighty is here. The presence of God is in our midst. Christ in heaven gives us the presence of God as mediator and it's known by the agency of the Holy Spirit. So when the Holy Spirit is here, God is here through Christ. Do you know that? Do you believe it? Do you really, really believe that worship is God's dwelling place? If you do, take a moment to think about what that really means. But secondly, this true worship of faith in the dwelling presence of God is something in particular. It is faith in the presence of the Holy God. Jesus at the temple. He speaks about my house, quoting Isaiah 56, the Lord's house. Or in Matthew, my father's house. When you read your Bible from Genesis to Revelation and you think of temple, house, worship, there's one word used more than any other word. Holy. Holy. When you read your holy scriptures, it is God's holy presence that's known in worship. Do we believe that God's holy presence is here? In Exodus chapter 25, he says, build me a dwelling place. And he says, everything about this place is holy and set apart. The fabrics are holy. The poles are holy. The vessels are holy. And what's the name of the place that is the express manifestation of God's presence? The holy of holies. The problem with these Jews in verses 15 and 16 is that though they might confess with their lips this is the holy temple, they do not have the faith to be truly aware that God in his holiness is present at the temple. 
And we must cultivate the positive. The Father's house, Jehovah's house, the house of the New Testament church is where the Holy God is present. What does it mean God is holy? The key word is separation. He is separate from all creatureliness, separate from all earthliness, separated from anything common, separated from any sin, uncleanness or defilement. But there's a positive aspect. He's separate to or unto himself. He's separate unto moral excellency. He's separate unto transcendent majesty. God's holiness means no one can know his essence. In 1 Timothy chapter 6 verse 16, he dwells in light, purity, brilliance, holiness, unapproachable. God's holiness means anything created or sinful will be obliterated in the immediate presence of his holiness. In Exodus 33, um, Moses wants to see the very face, the very essence, the very glory of God. And it says, thou canst not see my face, for there shall no man see me and live. God's holiness means even the holy, perfect, righteous angels and heaven itself is unclean to God. Job 15, 15. Behold, he putteth no trust in his saints, his holy ones. Yea, the heavens are not clean in his sight. His holiness means he is unapproachable. How then can we approach and know and worship this holy God? Jesus Christ alone. I know this is a truth we speak about often, but know that outside of Jesus Christ, you can never know God. He who is in the bosom of the Father has revealed him to us. Or in John 14, Philip says, show us the Father, Jesus. And he says, the Father has been with you all along. And Philip doesn't know how to answer. How's the Father been with me all along? If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Well, Colossians 1.15, Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. What's Christ's name in the Gospels according to other spiritual beings? When the demons come in the presence of Christ, what do they say again and again and again? The Holy One. When Hebrews chapter 9 wants to show the character of Jesus, 
that he is fit for a perfect sacrifice. What language does it use? He is holy, undefiled, separate from sinners. And on that cross at Calvary, he takes the holy wrath and anger of God against sin, uncleanness and defilement for his people. So that through Jesus Christ, the Holy One, we can know, have access with and be acceptable to the thrice holy God. And Jesus Christ comes and he communicates his holiness to us in sanctification. And he, according to Romans 1.3, the Holy Spirit is called the other spirit of holiness. He sends the Spirit as the Spirit of holiness to not only sanctify us, but in our gatherings, in our soul, we have a sense and knowledge of the holy. And he puts into our hearts a faith that believes God is holy and I can approach him through Jesus Christ, the mediator. And if someone does not believe in the holiness of God, they do not believe in Jesus Christ. So many people who they want nothing to do with sovereignty, nothing to do with holiness, nothing to do with justice. God is a God of love and only love. They worship an idol of their own imaginations. The true God is holy. And we come to know the holy through the revealed holy one, Jesus Christ. And when we have faith that the Holy God is in our worship service, it produces a reverent worship of God. Psalm 89 verse 7. God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be had in reverence of all them that are about him. If these Jews truly believed Psalm 89.7, they would not dare to buy and sell in the holy place. They would not dare to exchange money in the holy place. They would not dare to take shortcuts through the temple. They would treat the temple holy, reverent, because it's God's house. And it's a place that's the house of prayer for worship. And so if we truly believe that worship is the presence of God, if we truly believe it's the holy presence of God through Christ by his spirit, we will greatly fear him. Fear is an emotion. Fear is a grace given by the Holy Spirit where we are aware of the majesty of God. We dread to offend him. We desire out of love to please him. And we'll live our whole lives according to his will. How can you grow in this fear? Starts by faith. Faith. 
the means is the word of God. You contemplate God as we discussed this morning in Sabbath school. And the Holy Spirit takes that truth of God, gives you experience of his holy presence, and fills you with reverence for him. And when you read the Bible and gives examples of how to do this, you see what it's like to fear God. Let's take Isaiah chapter 6, the classic text, where it's speaking of Jesus Christ. John 12, 32 says, Isaiah saw Jesus. He saw Jesus in his pre-incarnate state, looking forward to his exalted state. So if you're worshipping the Jesus Christ who's in heaven now, this is the experience of him. It's not the only experience of him, but it's the real experience of him as well. He says that Jehovah was high and lifted up. He is a king in his temple. And he is so holy, the seraphims have to cover their eyes and chant, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And Isaiah is so filled with the purity and the light of Jesus Christ. He's in the dust. Woe is me, for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of an unclean people. Same experience of Peter in Luke chapter 5. When he saw the otherness of the power of Christ, he said, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. You see, when you see the majesty of the purity of Jesus Christ and God, you have such a sense of your sinfulness. And remember, Isaiah's not this man who's living a life of outward sin everywhere, like some hypocrite. He's a godly, holy man. But before Jesus Christ, he's a great sinner. So if you know the moral purity of Jesus Christ, you'll see the holiness of God revealed. And it will produce in you, by the spirit of holiness, a reverential awe as you see how sinful you are and how excellent he is. Or secondly, maybe it's not sin, it's simply the otherness and awesomeness of God. Job, when he's trying to understand his circumstances and providential situations, says many things. He speaks too much. And he starts to utter things he does not understand. And then Jehovah comes in his holiness in a whirlwind. And then he speaks to him from chapter 38 to 42 to show the highness, transcendence and majesty of himself. And he says from verse 38, The Lord answered Job out of the world one, Who is this that darkeneth counsel by words without knowledge? You do not know what you're speaking of. Guard now thy loins like a man, and I will demand of thee, 
answer me. Where was thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare if thou hast understanding. Who have laid the measures thereof, or thou knowest, or has stretched out the line upon it? Whereupon are the foundations thereof fastened? Who laid the cornerstone? Do you know these things? And he goes page after page. And then Job responds to the majesty and the transcendence of God. And he says, I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now mine eye seeth thee, I truly now know. Wherefore I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. Maybe that's you need. The transcendent majesty of God to behold and meditate till it produces fear. That's how R.C. Sproul came to be obsessed with the holiness of God. You see, R.C. Sproul was in college and he was fairly recently converted and he was reading and studying his Bible and one night in his bed he could not sleep. All he could think was the awesomeness and greatness and holiness of God. And he got out of his college room and he says, I was compelled. A force was taking over me and telling me I must be on my own. And he went to the college chapel, shut the door and spent all night in the chapel. And he said, I uttered not a word. I was so aware of the holiness of God. And from that day, experiencing God's holy presence... He says he studied and meditated and contemplated and taught the holiness of his God. Maybe that's what you need. You need to know the otherness and the separateness and the transcendent majesty of God so that you can say, I fear him. Or maybe you need to look to the cross Where will you find the beauty and holiness of God? It's the cross. In Psalm 22, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Verse 3, Thou art holy. God's holiness is his beauty. Don't you hate someone who's so inconsistent and hypocritical? Can't you stand someone like a judge who has the appearance of regality and changes his mind on a whim? God is so holy that he will punish sin on the cross. Stephen Charnock How can we know the true beauty of holiness? He says, not all the vials of judgment that have or shall be poured out upon the wicked world, nor the naming furnace of a sinner's conscience, not the irreversible sentence pronounced against the rebellious demons, nor the groans of the damned creatures give such a demonstration of God's hatred of sin as the wrath of God let loose upon his son. Never did divine holiness appear more beautiful and lovely 
than at the time our Saviour's countenance was most marred in the midst of his dying groans. This himself acknowledges in Psalm 22, Thou art holy. So if you want more of a sense of God's holy presence, go to Calvary. See God's holy judgment against sin on the cross. And that will produce the beauty, loveliness of God's holiness to your soul. And always remember he's doing it for you to save you. So now, when you come to worship by faith, you know my house, Jehovah's house, my Father's house is a house of prayer. It's a time when we come into the very presence of the Almighty and our souls are filled with an awe, an awe of God. It is revealed through Jesus Christ as mediator and it is experienced by us due to the work of the Spirit of Holiness revealing to us. And our worship will be sincere, honest, and God-glorifying. But very briefly, just to finish, how do people respond to Christ cleansing the temple? The chief priests and the scribes hate Christ. They fear him because the people hear his doctrine. That's what true worship does. True worship exposes the hypocrite. True worship exposes the externalist, the formalist, the dead orthodoxy. And they want him dead. But they won't do it in the midst of the people. As we know, they'll wait for a time when Judas, in the night time, will betray his Lord and they will get him in the garden. But notice, true worship exposes dead orthodoxy. Let us be men, women and children who do not dishonour God, but we know this is his house. This is a house of prayer. And in our hearts, we enjoy and worship God sincerely and we live lives consistently with this worship of God. And if we do so, it is acceptable. Remember Hebrews 12, 28. Let us worship him acceptably with godly fear for our God is a consuming fire. Let us pray.